Hi, I'm Eden. And I'm Nicole. Welcome to Roadside, Roadside Horror, Horror Show. Show. We're in Louisiana again this week. Oh, the great Pelican State. That's what it is. I couldn't think of it. I've also seen Bayou State, and I'm not sure which is correct. I like them both, though. I like them both, too. I mean, I do think of Bayou's when I think of Louisiana. So Truth, truth. There was a Jeopardy question earlier about um, the Buckeye State. Ohio. Yep. And I got it right because of this podcast. Nice, nice. Learning new things is what we're all about here at Roadside Horror Show. Exactly. Just so you can impress your friends with Jeopardy answers. Ah. <laughs> uh. Well, I do have, uh, speaking of learning new things, I do have some interesting and weird laws from the great state of Louisiana to share with you today, Eden. Very fun. So I thought this first law was kind of hilarious in a weird way. So you know how like in New Orleans, especially they'll have like the jazz funerals where it's like people playing like jazz music and marching down the street with like the hearse and such. Well, we've all seen Coven, Nicole. Okay, good, good. Thank God, I'm with my people. So I guess there's also uh, a law in Louisiana that has additional restrictions on some of the behavior of mourners. So after you get done with your jazzy parade, funeral parade, and you go back to the wake, uh, if you want to eat more than three sandwiches and your host tells you no, you can thank the person who ruined it for everybody by eating more than their share when this law was enacted. And the law is that you have a three sandwich limit at a wake per mourner. What? First of all, how hungry are you that eating three sandwiches? Yeah, I mean, I mean, grief does strange things. Okay, that's fair. That's fair. But help yourself to some goddamn casserole. That's what it's there for. Yes. I mean, I've actually never eaten any sort of casserole, but what? You know, yes, I know. Not a hot dish. Nope. Wow. Wow. Where that's gonna change? That has to change. <laughs> I did see a pierogi casserole recipe that I wanted to try out, though, because it sounded good. That does sound good. I be that sounds easy and delicious. Yes. So speaking of parades, on a slightly more upbeat note, if you're attending a parade such as Mardi Gras, let's say, it is illegal for you to bring along your reptile companions. So the law in Louisiana says that you cannot bring a reptile or a snake within 200 yards of a Mardi Gras parade route. How much do you want to bet? That that was some Southern Baptist preacher nonsense that happened where someone got bit by a freaking snake during a revival <laughs> thing. And that's why that law has been put into the books. It could definitely be possible. And then I also think about like those people who will bring like their pet iguana or like their big ass boa constrictor as like decoration for themselves as they go to like parades and things. And I'm like, I can't. Mm -mm. That's true. There was this guy that walked around my neighborhood uh, with a skunk around his neck. So Okay. Well, that's kind of cute. But it, is. it was adorable. He no, was there definitely, strange, there was definitely somebody who would like show up to like events, dance parties and stuff like an iguana. I'm like, no, Weird. this is not good for me. This is not good for your beloved iguana. You need to take your iguana home. Exactly. Get it to that heat lamp. Mm -hmm. uh, what else is weird? Oh, speaking of reptiles, it is illegal to tie up your pet alligator to a fire hydrant. It's prohibited by law. Wow. Mm-hmm. Got to stay free of those uh, fire hydrants. I don't know why it's specifically just alligators and not, say, you know, dogs. Yeah. How many pet alligators are running around Louisiana? Apparently enough to warrant this law. That's true. This one is kind of interesting. Now, we've come across a lot of spitting laws where it's prohibited to spit on the ground and things like that in the course of our road trip. 
But I've never come across a law like this one in Louisiana where you can be fined for gargling in public. What? Yeah, I was like, how often does one gargle in public? I mean, I gargle in the morning after brushing my teeth, sure. I gargle salt water when I'm sick. But never Mm -hmm. have I been walking down the street going, "Mm -mm, you know what? I just need a good swill of something so I can gargle. You know what this walk needs? More gargling. (laughs) Uh, Speaking of walking, Eden, there are also a lot of pedestrian laws in Louisiana. Uh, One of the ones that I thought was kind of interesting, given that we also know that New Orleans has a open container law. There is a law on the books that you can be arrested for passing out drunk anywhere in public. Okay. But there was a time when this was not the case. You could pass out anywhere you wanted in public as long as you didn't block the sidewalk. So before, you know, the 21st century, you could get drunk as a skunk and pass out anywhere in public, like a set of steps, maybe the street. But if you block that sidewalk, then you know what? Then you're in trouble. Then you're in trouble. Be considerate with your passing out blind drunk. Exactly. Be careful where you land. Uh, and then this last law, I just thought was so hilarious because <laughs> I'm like, how, how does this even work? I guess in today's day and age of, of masks, it makes more sense, perhaps. But in the great state of Louisiana, goatees must be kept private unless you first pay a special licensing fee for the privilege of wearing a goatee in public. Whoa. Okay. That's really weird. <laughs> <laughs> like in my head, I go to like, I'm like, were goatees like a hot new thing? And like, they didn't want the kids doing it because they look trashy. And so they're like, you need a license for a goatee. It's just too racy. It was very scandalous for the time, apparently. But yeah, so those are my weird laws for, for Louisiana. And I think they're, they're pretty delightful. That, the goatee one really got me. I like it. <laughs> All righty. So Nicole, you have a story to tell us. I, I do, I do. So today for my story, we are heading to Thibodeau, the seat of Le Fouche Parish in southeastern Louisiana. It's located 60 miles west of New Orleans, and the city has a population of about 14,500 people, and it's about five and a half square miles in area. It's part of Acadiana, aka Cajun country. And it sits along the banks of the Bayou Lafouche, which is a 116-mile-long bayou that flows into the Gulf of Mexico and is one of the first areas that was settled in the 18th century by the French-speaking exiles from Acadia, who were exiled from the area of Canada that now makes up the maritime provinces. So really, it's one of the first areas where we see the people who would eventually become Cajun settle. Very nice. Now, Thibodeau itself was incorporated in 1830 under the name Thibodeauville in honor of Henry Schuyler Thibodeau, who was a local planter who provided the land for the city center and also served as the acting governor of Louisiana in 1824. During the pre-Civil War period, Thibodeau was mainly a trading center for the regional sugar cane plantations in the parish. Now, during the Civil War, the Confederates pillaged the city and burned the supplies, bridges, and sugar storage before they left the city when the Union Army invaded. Uh, The Union Army took control of the city in 1862, and they occupied it through the end of the Civil War. During that time, the federal authorities ordered that all enslaved people in the parish be freed and paid wages. 
Uh, This led to decades of tension between the largely black labor force and the white sugarcane plantation owners, obviously. The end result was that Thibodeau became the location of one of the most violent labor disputes in American history. Hmm. And from what I could find in my research, this is the, the big significant historical thing that happened in Thibodeau. Okay. You know, my story, like I was looking at other stories and a lot of them took place in Thibodeau. Yeah. So I got some of the history when just looking at it. And uh, yeah, so this sounds about right. Yeah, it's interesting. But basically, the long and the short of it is that in 1887, the sugarcane workers held this three-week strike during the critical autumn harvest period. Uh, And basically, they were upset that they were working in really deplorable field conditions and that instead of being paid monetary cash wages, they were paid script that was only redeemable at company stores, right? Yep. Very common shitty labor practice from the 19th century. And the really insidious thing is that these people, you know, were probably uh, slaves a generation or so before that. Some of them probably still, you know, can remember, you know, being freed from slavery. And because of this script company store system, they would set these the goods that these workers need to buy excessively high prices. And the law of the land was that you were bound to the plantation that you owed money to until you paid off your debt. So basically, they became free people. servants. Right, but they were debt slaves. It would be like going to a workhouse. So you basically weren't free to leave. Um, In an effort to break the strike, uh, workers and their families were evicted. And so they went to nearby Thibodeau. Uh, Then on November 23rd, 1887, a local white paramilitary group attacked the workers and their families. Over the next three days, somewhere between 35 and 50 black people, including elderly people, women, and children, were killed, and as many as 300 black people were wounded or went missing. Wow. Yeah, it was pretty awful. The Thibodeau massacre basically ended any kind of organized labor rights among sugarcane workers in the area until the 1940s. Now... In present day, Thibodeau, sugarcane is still grown in the outlying areas, but the local economy has diversified a little bit. It includes things like shipping, fishing, offshore support. There's agricultural equipment manufacturing, as well as the jobs we see in a lot of parts of America, which are medical care and the retail industry. The city is home to a university. It's Nickel State University, which is a public school that has over 6,000 students and offers bachelor's and master's in several different programs. Uh, Thibodeau actually offers quite a lot to do for a city of its size. They have quite a few restaurants. You can explore Bayou Lafouche through various airboat swamp tours. You can charter a boat to go fishing. And you can also explore the uh, wildlife by hiking the America's Wetland Birding Trail. Since you are in Cajun country, if you do want to learn more about Cajun culture, you can stop by the Bayou Lafouche Folklore and Heritage Museum or the Wetlands Acadia Cultural Center, which is part of the Jean Lafitte National Historic Park and Preserve. They have a lot of that going on. Yep, yep. It's beautiful uh, natural country there. Now, the reason I'm telling you about Thibodeau is because it's also the hometown of a serial killer who's relatively unknown outside of Louisiana despite having a victim count higher than other well-known American serial killers like Jeffrey Dahmer or Richard Ramirez, the Night Stalker. Part of the reason we may not have heard about this serial killer is because his crimes came to light directly after the devastation of Hurricane Katrina. Oh. This is the story of the Bayou Strangler, 
Ronald Dominique. I have heard of him. Right. I The name seemed familiar. Well, the Bayou Strangler seemed familiar, but I didn't know too much about it. So I figured I'd dive into it a little bit more. Born in Thibodeau on January 9th, 1964, Ronald Joseph Dominique grew up in poverty alongside an older sister in a trailer park at the edge of the city. Although he grew up extremely poor, Dominique was a decent student and he also sang in the school choir and glee club. But by the time he reached high school in the early 1980s, he was struggling with weight problems, low self-esteem, and depression. Who wasn't? I know, right? Like, (laughs) I feel you. These struggles, along with the fact that he didn't play any sports and really was into partying on the weekends like the other kids, made Dominique the target of bullying by his classmates. What a surprise. It's like every bad 80s movie. Yes. Then, during his senior year, Dominique also started to realize and come to terms with the fact that he was gay. So he did what any queer kid would do. He started going to the local gay bar. But this exploration of his sexuality didn't last very long. His classmates found out about his visits, and their bullying and harassment escalated, including physical violence. Dominique quickly shoved himself back into that closet nice and deep and vehemently denied that he was gay. So deep that he was finding Narnia. (laughs) Wow, beautiful, beautiful. (laughs) (laughs) After graduating in 1983, Ronald Dominique enrolled in Nichols State University, right in Thibodeau. He was pursuing a degree in computer science, but it didn't quite work out for him, and eventually he dropped out and started working a series of low-paying, low-skilled jobs. During this time, he mostly lived with his mother or with his sister, and he had a reputation around the trailer parks that he lived in as being quiet but helpful guy. A lot of the sources I found said that uh, he would be that person who would come over and help the older folks in the in the community, you know, mow their lawns or like set up Christmas decorations, that sort of thing. Oh, great. Here we go again. <laughs> Pillar of the freaking community. Around this time, though, Dominique also had his first run in with the law. He was arrested on charges of sexual harassment committed via telephone in June in 1985. I couldn't find any other details about this arrest. Like, I, I don't exactly understand how you would be charged for sexual harassment on the phone unless, like, you were, like, berating somebody or yelling at somebody in a sexual fashion. I don't know. Is anyone but... else flashing on Serial Mom right now? Oh, my God. You're right. Yeah. Oh, good call, Is Eden. the cocksucker residence? <laughs> Pussy willow. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe that is what. Ronald Dominique did, or something Maybe. similar. Um, either way, after his arrest, he was only fined $75, and the police let him go. He stayed off the radar for the next nine years, and during that time, Ronald Dominique slowly came to terms with his sexuality, and he started spending more time at the local gay bars. He also began dressing up in drag, especially as one of his favorite singers, Patti LaBelle. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, despite being a barfly, He didn't have any steady relationships with men or even openly admit that he was gay to relatives or acquaintances during this time. Perhaps because of this, Dominique wasn't readily accepted among the other folks in the local LGBT community. I'm not really sure why they wouldn't accept him. Some sources say that the locals kind of looked down on him because he was sort of like weird and poor. Others say that he was kind of off-putting and uncomfortably awkward. Okay. 
I mean, as former like gay bar flies ourselves, Eden, I'm pretty sure you and I can picture this kind of person who's just yeah. sort of just a weirdo. We, we've ran into these people. Yes, yes, we have. Either way, this frequency of going to gay bars might explain his next arrest in May of 1994. He was picked up one night for a drunk driving, but again, he was only fined for the offense and released. Two years later, things took a dramatically darker turn for Dominique, though. In August 1996, Dominique was again living with his sister. Neighbors called the police after a partially dressed young man jumped out of the window of his sister's house, screaming that Dominique had raped him and attempted to kill him. Oh, wow. Yeah. Ronald Dominique was immediately arrested and booked on a $100,000 bond. When the case went to court, however, the prosecutor's office were unable to locate the alleged victim or even establish who this guy was, and the charges against Dominique were dismissed in November of 1996. Oh, wow. Now, between, between August and November, Dominique was in jail. And this really messed him up. Like, he was traumatized by the time he spent in jail waiting for his trial. And he made the commitment to himself that he would never go back to jail again. And then he lived the rest of his life happily ever after. Just kidding. You know what you're listening to. (laughs) So on July 12th, 1997, when he picked up 19-year-old David Mitchell, a black man who was hitching home from his grandmother's house after a family birthday party, Dominique had a lethal solution in mind to prevent leaving behind a victim who could go to the police and put him in jail. After he assaulted Mitchell, he strangled him and dumped his body in a ditch alongside the road in a wooded area of St. Charles Parish. And Dominique is also black, right? No, he's a white man. Oh, okay. Well, you said the Patti LaBelle thing, so. I know. It's interesting, right? Like, he would dress up like Patti LaBelle, and, like, I couldn't find out, like, any pictures or anything. Like, I didn't know if he would, like, go so far as to, like, darken his skin to do almost like a blackface, or he would just kind of dress in her style and, like, perform her songs. Yeah. Okay. Huh. It is interesting to note that a majority of his victims were were black or Hispanic men. Hmm. Okay. I believe I came across a, a, a little tidbit that said I think only one or two of his victims were Caucasian. Huh. Now, here's the crazy weird thing. Mitchell's body lays in this ditch, and it's discovered two days later. And his autopsy doesn't show any trace of physical trauma, drugs, or alcohol, even though Dominique strangled him. But the coroner did find ditch water in his lungs, and therefore they ruled his death as an accidental drowning. Oh, no. Like, what? His relatives were outraged, as they should be, especially since it was like kind of like a very low water level. And he was a very strong swimmer. And there's also this really odd fact that when they found David Mitchell's body, his trousers had been lowered to his ankles. Oh. So. Possible sexual assault. Exactly. But because they didn't find any other physical evidence, they ruled it an accidental drowning, which is just nuts to me. What year was this? 1997. Okay. So basically, Ronald Dominique gets away with it. Nobody even suspects that this poor man was murdered. With his first victim under his belt, Dominique begins to refine his tactics over the next several years. He would focus his attention on finding the right victims. To Dominique, this meant men who were homeless or addicted to drugs and alcohol, were black and Hispanic. And people he generally felt would not be missed. 
He often would meet his victims during walks or when driving his pickup truck around or even at some of the gay bars he frequented. Dominique didn't really care if the guys were gay or straight. He just wanted them to come back to his trailer with him. To that end, he would offer them alcohol, drugs, even a place to crash. And then for the guys who were straight, he would also eventually start this new ruse. He would proposition them with meeting his supposed girlfriend, who was interested in spicing up their love life with a three-way or a cockled sexual situation. Oh. So Dominique also would use his unassuming appearance to appear harmless to his victims. He was overweight, quite short. He was only about 5'6". Oh, wow. He didn't look physically intimidating. And like all serial killers, as he started to evolve, he started walking with a cane and he would fire in a heart condition to seem even more weaker and hapless. Oh. Now, after luring his victims to his trailer, he would drop the whole sick weakling routine, overpower his victims, and rape them. Again, as his pathology evolved, Dominique developed an interest in bondage and would convince the men to let them tie him up before assaulting and strangling them. Wow. Yeah. Once dead, he would use his pickup truck to dump the bodies in one of six local rural parishes. Using this method, Dominique raped and murdered at least 23 men over the next nine years. Over time, he grew bolder and a bit sloppy when it came to covering his tracks as well. They all screw up sometime. Yep, yep. I was just flabbergasted by the sheer number of people of men, I should say, that he murdered. I was like, this this is, this is nuts. And it's kind of crazy, too, because these are only the ones that we have the physical evidence to support or that he yeah. confessed to. So he could actually have a higher victim count. We're not quite sure. By December 1997, he had killed his second victim, 20-year-old Gary Pierre, who was found fully clothed, again, with no signs of physical trauma or drugs in his system. Then between 1998 and 2000, Dominique killed at least seven more men. Damn. Yeah. He had a really weird cool off period where like he killed his first victim and then a couple of months later killed his second victim. Like he basically took time off for the holidays. It was really weird. Like he would kill in like January, February, March and then stop and then May, June and then stop and then August, September and stop. It was very odd. Weird. Yeah. Starting with the discovery of 38-year-old Larry Ranson's body in July of 1998, his victims started to show signs of trauma being caused by pre-mortem bondage. So this is when, when police think that he really started to get into the bondage and use that as part of his technique to render these men helpless. Yeah. During this time, investigators also discovered traces of Dominique's semen on the victims' bodies as well. Okay, good. So we're finally getting some physical evidence. Yep. We start to get physical evidence and they start putting together a little bit of a profile. Between 2000 and 2003 is a major cool down period for Ronald Dominique. During this period, he and his sister move out of Thibodeau to Bayou Blue, a small unincorporated community that covers 23 square miles that stretches across Lafouche and Terrebonne parishes. Dominique also got a job as a specialist who checked electricity levels at local power supplies, allowing him to travel to remote areas and surrounding parishes as well. This new location and the new job let Dominique accelerate his crimes once he was finally settled. So basically, he has this period where he doesn't confess to killing anybody between 2000 and 2003, 
which seems a bit odd considering his previous murder rate. But he says it was because he was kind of in between moving and, you know, figuring out his new territory and that sort of thing, which to me, it just smells fishy because Bayou Blue isn't that far from Thibodeau. And he was already driving around like six different parishes to like dump bodies. So yeah. Now, once he gets settled, he starts to accelerate his crimes. As I mentioned, over the next three years, he rapes and murders at least fourteen more men. His last confirmed victim, I think, is one of the weirdest and the saddest. It's this man, twenty-seven-year-old Christopher Sutfield, who Dominique had met at a local gay bar in the summer of two thousand and six. Unlike his other victims, the two actually hit it off and they began to date. Oh, weird. Right? Then, on October 14th, while on a date together in Iberville Parish, Dominique, for some reason, attacks and kills Sutfield. No really, no reason as to why something just happened between the two of them and he attacks and kills him. By November of 2006, the police were finally starting to look at Ronald Dominique after a Bayou Blue man named Ricky Wallace reported a strange encounter with Dominique. Wallace said that a few months prior, Dominique invited him back to his trailer to share some drugs and have sex with Dominique's girlfriend. Wallace agreed, and when they arrived at the trailer, Dominique tried to convince him to let Dominique tie him up because his girlfriend was, quote, a bit shy but was very into bondage, and having Wallace tied up would make her feel more comfortable. Wallace is like, this is too weird. No. Yeah. Mm-mm. And Dominique's like, that's fine. We can just do these drugs, and then you can leave. And he lets him go. Initially, the police were like, okay, dude, we know you're kind of a junkie, and you've told a lot of lies in the past about other things we've picked you up for. But we'll pass it on to the FBI task force. So in 2005... After police confirmed that there was a very similar MO for at least two of Dominique's victims and they found matching DNA on them, they reached out to the FBI. So they set up a task force in 2005. So it had been about a year since this task force was out there looking for this killer. The police passed this info that Ricky Wallace tells them to the task force. And the FBI is like, go arrest him. Arrest Dominique. So they do. They bring him in and they interrogate him about Wallace's story. They also ask him about two of his previous victims and then ask for a DNA sample. Dominique provides it and then the police release him. The FBI and FBI analysis confirms that the DNA matches the semen left behind at least on at least two victims. And a week later, Dominique is arrested at a homeless shelter. And this is in December of 2006. A homeless shelter? What happened to his trailer? Well, this is the interesting thing. After his arrest, Dominique tells the police that he knew it was only a matter of time before he got caught. And he was living with his sister at the time. So he decided to move out of her house and into a homeless shelter so that he wouldn't create any kind of inconvenience for her. Well, at least he was um, thoughtful in that respect. I, yeah, I don't know. Considerate, I guess. That's yeah. okay. A lot? <laughs> I don't know. Dominique, at this point, is very much like, well, if you caught me, I guess I'm just going to cooperate and get the best deal I can. And then proceeds to confess to 23 murders. <laughs> Holy crap. Yeah. The police are like, uh, okay. And they start going through their files, and they realize that there are some victims that were initially ruled accidental. Uh, there was, I think, 
when I was reading through it, there was at least five, uh, four that they didn't even realize were murdered victims because of just the way the bodies were found, other extenuating circumstances. Like some of them, they thought it would, perhaps it was just like a, a robbery gone bad or an altercation between friends. Uh, there was a case of like two of his victims, um, two men that he had killed had known each other and he killed one man and the police actually looked at the other man. Oh. For the first man's like murder when they found the body. And then a couple months later, Dominique picked that guy up and murdered him too. I'm like, wow. What? Like nuts. So after this, the police are like, okie dokie. Well, would you be interested in pleading guilty to like a plea bargain? And he refuses. Dominique says, no, I'm, I did these things, but you know what? I'm not guilty because most of my victims voluntarily agreed to be tied up and handcuffed. And they said they would have sex with me. So they just wanted to earn the money or get the drugs that I said I would give them. So it's their fault. <laughs> if somebody refused to be tied up, I would just let them go unharmed. That's still not how this works, buddy. <laughs> I know. I'm like, oh, my God. When the police asked him again about his motives behind the crime, like, why did you do these terrible, terrible things, Ronald Dominique? He said that he still wanted to explore his sexuality, but he also didn't want to have any victims left behind. So he decided that he would just murder these men instead of risking the off chance that one of them would press charges and send him back to jail. When he was finally brought to trial, Dominique must have had a bit of a change of heart, probably because the death penalty was hanging over his head at this point. Prosecutors again offered him a guilty plea of first-degree murder to eight of the men he killed in exchange for life sentences and to take the death penalty off the table. He agreed, and on September 23, 2008, Ronald Dominique was sentenced to eight consecutive life sentences. Oh, wow. Yeah, so he's never getting out of jail. And he's currently serving out his sentence at the state penitentiary in Angola, Louisiana. All righty. Yeah. I don't know if you've seen Angola pop up a little bit, but it's not the nicest prison. Oh, no, I, I haven't heard of it. Yeah. It's pretty, pretty violent there. So, yeah, that is the tale of the Bayou Strangler, That's Ronald nuts. Dominique. I yeah. wonder why he's not better known. I, I do think a lot had to do with the fact that all of this went down like after Katrina. Yeah. Because you figure Katrina was what, like October 2005, 2006? 2005, 2006, somewhere around there. Yeah. Yeah. And that's right when he was like basically, you know, committing his last murders and he got arrested in like the fall of 2006. And it was a very quick trial. Well, I should say it was a very quick like confession. And then eventually the trial happened and he was sentenced only a few, like two years later. Or so, yeah. Yeah, I think it's just one of those things where there was so much other things hitting the news cycle that we kind of forgot about it. Exactly. Yeah. I forget what documentary I was watching recently, but it was something where um, whoever like went missing, their missing persons case was kind of overshadowed by by 9-11 happening. Oh, yeah. That happened, too, with the uh, McMillions scandal where – People were running like a uh, um, the McDonald's monopoly contest was oh, being yeah. rigged by a group of people, and mm -hmm. like they all went to trial, and it was a really big news story. And then like that, like as they went to trial, like the next day, or no, no, I think it was when the news story broke. The next day was like nine eleven, so it kind of got overshadowed. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. So what do you think? Very interesting. There were definite dahmer similarities and also a little bit of a similarity to uh oh i can't remember his name the weird guy with the mannequins in indiana 
Oh, Herb. Herb Baumeister. Yeah. Yeah. He he came up as like a comparison as well. Yeah, I definitely saw big similarities there with their their nuttiness and the whole, you know, I'm gay but don't want to really deal with it thing. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it's, it's, in- it's again a story of someone having a really shitty childhood and that probably fucked them up in the head. Um, but, you know, still not an excuse to murder. Exactly. I also think it's interesting too, like the comparison, like I thought about this a lot. So Dominique wasn't married at all, but her Baumeister was, and I only, like, I wonder if he would have been as prolific as Dominique if he hadn't been married. Yeah. So kind of that, like, maybe we're lucky that, that, that Herb got hitched. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> at my sources for this week's story were Wikipedia, good old Murderpedia, allthatsinteresting.com. TheDallasVoice.com and LouisianaTravel.com. Thank you very much, Nicole. All righty, guys, we're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with another story. Hey, guys, Eden and Nicole here. We have something special for you. We've got more Florida Man stuff. Yes, thanks for our lovely social media followers for posting their birthdays in response to our fun Florida cat meme. So I know Eden has dug up some Florida Man stories for you. I have. It's always fun when we get to do these, so we really appreciate it. Our first one is for May 29th. From Alyssa Marie B. Here's your Florida Man story. Florida Man arrested for allegedly throwing corn cob at mom's head. <laughs> oh, he's grinning in his uh, um, mug shot. Oh, yeah, he's real happy about it. <laughs> He got her good. So <laughs> Florida man was arrested Sunday after an alleged culinary confrontation in which police say the 27-year-old hurled an ear of corn at his mother's head. <laughs> Cody Cummins. Oh, God, that's very similar to a porn star's name, I think. Cody's Cummins with his corn cob? Because I'm pretty sure there's a porn star called like Cody Cummings or something. Was arrested at about 3.30 a.m. after being accused of the corn kerfuffle. At a Zephyrill's home, WOFL reported, citing the Pasco County Sheriff's Office. Cummins is accused of throwing the corn cob at his mom. Officials said the woman was hurt, but didn't sustain any injuries in the food fight. <laughs> she was hurt, but had no injuries. So it was like her, her pride, pride that was wounded. Yeah. She had a big old face of like corn and butter. like <laughs> Something. Butter got in her eye. I don't know. Cummins allegedly fled the scene. <laughs> but was later tracked down and taken into custody. Online arrest records show he was charged with domestic battery. Damn. It's like throws a corn cup at his mom's head and then takes off running. Ooh, there's comments on this one too. How does one get hurt without sustaining any injuries? Indeed. My question as well. Internet commenter. Oh god, someone said he was charged with assault and buttering. <laughs> Jesus. All right, we're going to go to the next one. So I love this one. This is for November 11th. From Abby C11. Florida man breaks into restaurant, strips naked, eats noodles, plays bongos. <laughs> oh, he's an old man and he's very saggy from this picture. Yikes. Oh, thank God his junk is covered. Okay. <laughs> oh, this is in St. Petersburg, Florida. Of course it is. Of course. According to the Tampa Bay Times, a St. Petersburg police officer was investigating a break-in at the Chataway restaurant, reviewing surveillance video that shows a burglar eating a plate of chicken wings and drinking a beer inside the kitchen on November 6th. 
The officer then stumbled across another incident from the night before. Video shows a different man riding his bike up to the restaurant at 358 22nd Avenue South, pedaling around the parking lot for about 10 minutes, then slipping in through a back gate. He opens the door to a shed after wandering around for a bit and removes a set of bongos. Then the man gains access to a restaurant bathroom and exits naked. He sits at one of the restaurant's picnic tables and digs into a bowl of instant ramen noodles, which he brought (laughs) with him. (laughs) So weird. The video also shows him playing the bongos, still naked. The burglar from the first video, who ate chicken wings and had a beer at the restaurant, stole an estimated $500 worth of stuff, including cash tips, a laptop, a tablet, and a grocery bag he filled with beer. Police identified the homeless man who played the bongos in his birthday suit, but his name is not being released to the public. The restaurant is not pressing charges on the homeless man because he meant no harm and didn't actually steal anything from the restaurant. As for the original burglar, police are still looking for him. Wow, that's like a double trouble Florida man story. Yeah, it is. Wow. Wow. I mean, good for the restaurant owners for like realizing it's like, come on, like he's just a homeless dude. Like he was bored. But that other guy, like, fuck him. Exactly. Yeah. Like stealing people's tips is so wrong. Yes. He deserves to have corn thrown at him. Yes. Cause somebody call Cody. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you have it, gang. Those are your extra special dose of Florida man tales. If you would like to hear your own Florida man story, Give us a shout out. You can let us know on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram at Roadside Horror Show. Thank you very much. And we're back. Hi, everyone. I bet you missed us. Uh, Yes, they probably did. Because we're awesome. Sometimes. (laughs) Other times we're not so great. Um, That's fair. (laughs) So, Eden, you know what I'm in the mood for? A news story. How did you know? Well, maybe because we talked about it. Oh, that too. Yeah. Nicole, you better remember to put the Florida man stuff in now because it leads up to my news story. (laughs) My news story for this week coming at you from actionnewsjax.com is Florida man arrested for reportedly tossing Gator into Wendy's. What? Yes. Uh, Well... (laughs) This explains a lot. It's in Jupiter, Florida. So a Jupiter, Florida man was arrested for throwing a live alligator into a Wendy's restaurant drive through east of Loxahatchee, according to WPTV. Joshua James, 23, was charged with aggravated assault with a deadly weapon. That being an alligator, I guess. Illegally. What? Illegally. Oh, it's a dead one. Illegally killing, possessing or capturing an alligator. A second-degree larceny petite theft, according to the Palm Beach Sheriff's Office. He he has not been released on bail as of Monday afternoon. WPTV reports that the incident occurred in October, but James had only been arrested recently by U.S. Marshals. Officials with Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission told WPTV that James pulled up for his order, and after a server handed a drink, and turned around, James tossed a three-and-a-half-foot alligator into the drive through window. What? Yes. Like, you could have done the same effect, bro, with, like, a rubber alligator without having to kill an animal. Yeah, Just why? saying. Why throw a fucking alligator? I mean, it's Florida, so there's enough of them, but still. 
But if you're going to like dine and dash at a fast food place, like throw something in the window and be like, oh, it's a snake or it's a plastic alligator. They don't know. Then you drive away. Jar of peanuts with the fake snake that comes out. Your tips inside, wink, wink. Yeah. Well, that is my news story. It was a shorter one, but still a goodie. Yeah. I, wow. Mm hmm. Yep. Yep. I, mm, baconators <laughs> make people do crazy things. Baconator alligator. Baconator alligators. All right. Well, thanks for sharing that wonderful news story, Eden. Absolutely. And you have a paranormal story for this week as well. Yes, I do. My story takes place in Derry, Louisiana, which is in uh, Natchitoches Parish. Uh, It's got literally no information on its Wikipedia page other than the fact that it's an unincorporated community, yet it does not tell me the size of said community or even how big the area is. Uh, I do know that it is on Louisiana Highway 1, though, so that's something. Uh, Unfortunately, uh, my intro has died now, along with my soul, especially since (laughs) I had another intro before this one that was pretty good, if I do say so myself. But it turned out that there were two places of the same name for what I'm going to be covering, and I had to start over this week. Ugh, that's the worst. Yeah. So let's talk about Louisiana for a minute. What's the big product that you think of coming out of Louisiana in the antebellum period? The antebellum period? I I mean, sugar? Other one. Cotton? Cotton, correct. Yeah, sugar, cotton, and Tabasco. That's all I know. Yeah, so cotton, which leads me to the subject of my story, because what is Louisiana, or most of the South for that matter, without the big, beautiful homes in which 99% of them had had terrible things happen there? I say 99% because I'm sure there were some kind slave owners, but really being the kindest slave owner is like being the best worst person. So, (laughs) you know, it's like saying that sweatshop owner was really nice guy. Or when people say Hitler like dogs. Anyway, this is the story of the Magnolia Plantation. Mm. That's such a Southern name for a plantation. It is, which is why there's two of them. And I think they're both owned by the same guy, but we'll get to that. I hope his mail got all fucked up then. The plantation was established in 1835 by Ambrose Lecomte II and his wife, Julia Bouard Lecomte. But we can also get back further than that uh, to 1753. In 1753, Jean-Baptiste Lecomte was given a land grant for a cotton plantation. And this was on either side of the Cane River, which I'm sure Cane is probably from Sugarcane, which was Nicole's suggestion for the crop mm-hmm. that she thinks of. Uh, so by the year 1860, Ambrose LeCompte had properties with a combined total acreage of 6,000 acres. Wow, that's huge. Yes. So I don't know how many properties that is, but that's a lot of properties and a lot of acres. So here's where things get into the shitty side of history, because all that cotton and other agricultural products had to be harvested somehow. Any idea how many slaves Ambrose owned? Oh, my goodness. With that much land, I can't even I can't even begin to imagine. Two hundred and seventy five. Wow. Congratulations, Ambrose. You are now Roadside Horror Show Shithead of the Week. Wow. Enslaved peoples were housed on the property in 70 cabins. Uh, The ones on the Magnolia Plantation, uh, 
were these two room brick buildings and uh, generous as the day is long, Ambrose put a family or group in each of the rooms. Mm. I don't know how big these rooms are, but I can say they weren't all that big since sometimes there'd be up to 10 people in a room. Yeah. Uh, From what I could find, all that was really in these rooms were a small fireplace where that's how they got their heat. That's how they cooked. That was all that was in there. Later, after the abolition of slavery, these were turned into single-family rentals on the property. Uh, And of the 24 uh, that were on the plantation's grounds, only eight stand today. Okay. In 1852, part of the property was passed down to Ambrose and Julia's daughter, Ursula Atala, and her husband, Matthew Herzog, who was from another prominent Creole family in the area, who also owned plantations, and they took over running Magnolia. Ursula also had a sister named Laura. She gets the normal name. I don't know why Ursula has <laughs> Ursula Atala. Um, and that sister, Laura, also married someone from the Herzog family as well. Just to further so solidify. The unity of their plantations? Yes. It's so weird. Mm-hmm. According to one story, during the Civil War, the plantation's overseer was killed by Union soldiers, and the main building of the Magnolia Plantation was set on fire. Uh, Around this time, a lot of the members of the Comte family, as well as the Herzog family, were injured or killed. Hmm. They also ended up setting fire to a lot of the crops, things like that. Um, And if anyone's not sure what the overseer is, it usually is another slave, but... It's the slave in charge of all the other slaves who doles out the beatings and the other stuff, too. Yeah, and sometimes it's also like a free person, a yeah. black or white free person who's just paid usually pretty crappily Yeah, to be like a slave driver. Yep, exactly. So after the Civil War and emancipation took place, Magnolia was still up and running, but obviously a lot had changed since they couldn't rely on slave labor anymore. But some of the freed slaves did stay on as tenants, sharecroppers, and day laborers. This might sound like things were better for the freed people who stayed on, right? Well, not exactly. Instead of money, and Nicole, you talked about this in your intro, uh, they were paid with what is essentially monopoly money, or scripts, because they could only use it at the store that was on the property. That's it. Nothing else. Awesome. The main house was rebuilt in 1890, And a lot of machinery ended up eventually replacing the laborers. Today, 20 buildings remain on the property, including the remaining cabin houses, which you can tour as far as I know, along with the store, the overseer's house, the blacksmith shop, and a gin barn, which I was sad to realize was for cotton gins and not the hooch. (laughs) Sorry to disappoint. Exactly. The main house, although no longer producing cotton, is still a private home, and unfortunately, you cannot tour it. So it would be like mm. the big selling point for me would be seeing the magnificent house. But Yeah, that's surprising. Yeah, but it's still privately owned. In 2001, the building became a National Historic Landmark. And the cool thing about this plantation is that it, along with Oakland Plantation, which is also haunted and beautiful, are on what is now the Cane River Creole National Historical Park. They're on that property. Hmm. So they're actually on a national park. Interesting. 
Magnolia is also on the Louisiana African American Heritage Trail as well. If you do want to visit, you can go to the park on weekdays from 8 a.m. to 4.30 p.m., but you'll have to wait until it reopens because due to COVID, it is currently closed. But just because the park is closed, that doesn't mean its ghostly residents aren't still working up a good scare for you. They say a lot of hauntings stem from two main causes, neither of which should be too much of a surprise if you've listened to this podcast before. First of which is your typical Louisiana reason being that the enslaved people on the plantation were practicing voodoo. And the other is because slavery sucks and slaves here were treated just as poorly as anywhere else, really. They did have footstocks on the property where slaves would be punished. And there are also journal entries from the Lecomte family saying that they would hunt down escaped slaves all the way to Texas. And that is nearly a direct quote from TravelChannel.com, so I want to make sure to cite my source there. Do not sue us, Travel Channel. We (laughs) say it all the time. We have no money for you. An interesting and fun thing about the voodoo side of things is that the enslaved blacksmiths were tasked with forging crosses for the graves of the Lecomte family. And if you really look at these crosses, they have a bunch of voodoo symbols on them, which is, I think, pretty cool. Yeah, for sure. Legend has it that the slaves would exact revenge for beatings, public humiliation, and just their general shitty lot in life by cursing the Lecomte family whenever they could. I would probably do the same. Yeah. Ain't no shame in that game. Another possible reason for the hauntings is that some of the wood used to recreate the original house after it burned down was taken from the slave quarters. Hmm. So, I mean, renovation and using stuff that was once the, well, property is, I guess, a strong word, but you know what I mean. Yeah. And the structure. Yes. As far as the actual hauntings themselves go, we'll start with an interesting spot in the main house called the dying room. Mm-mm, I don't like that one bit, but nope. I'm glad we're starting there. <laughs> it's named so for a few reasons. It's said that this is where the residents would go when they just gave up on life, according to one source. What? Uh, Yeah. um, It's also called this because there's just been a bunch of deaths there. Okay. The one death that was talked about in every source I came across was that of a Union soldier who was poisoned and died in this room during the Civil War when the house was pretty much taken over by the Union. So it's almost like a sick room. Yeah, like he died a very slow, agonizing death in that room. And apparently a lot of other family members that have lived in the house mm-hmm. just went there to die. Okay. Uh, so I bet that's got some pretty heavy energy if you're in it. <laughs> I was really hoping I'd be like, and this is where they would dye their linens and wonderful reds and oranges. Nope. Like, no. Nope. Nope. Also suck. The other kind of dying. Um, I know what podcast we're recording now. Exactly. Yes. You remember. It's not the craft one. (laughs) So rumor has it that there's actually a lot of Union soldiers buried on the grounds as well, which doesn't surprise me. Uh, Other graves have not been found as far as I know, but, you know. Um, So the ghost of a soldier can be seen in the dying room. I don't know what he does because they didn't care to tell me. So... (laughs) Uh, The only thing I do know about his ghost is that people who have slept in this room, which why would you want to, uh, report seeing his face in a window. 
Creepy. Yeah, he's just kind of like, hi, I'm still dead. How you doing? That sort of thing. Um, I have some of the basics here, um, you know, that happen in pretty much every haunted house, which is doors opening and closing on their own, objects moving, and a lot of disembodied voices. The team from Ghost Adventures, um, or was it Ghost Adventures or Ghost Hunters? Now I'm not sure, but it could have been Zach. It could have been other people. <laughs> We're here, and although I didn't watch the episode, I do know that they reported hearing voodoo chants echoing throughout the property. That's really Creepy. unnerving. Yes. Yeah, really unnerving. A lot of the staff that work at the property now report um, motion sensors and alarms going off for no reason all the time. So like something is moving around and you just don't see what it is. Mm-hmm. People have heard weird knocking around the house that isn't being caused by any living person. And that creeps me out because of the movie The Conjuring. Yes. Do you remember the knocking always in threes? Yeah. Signs of demonic infestation. Ugh. No thanks. Nope. Footsteps can be heard when no one else is around in this house as well, which is always just creepy. That happened in my parents' house, and I did not like it. The weirdest was when it would happen on the roof. Oh, yeah. Mm -mm. Mm -mm. That's not Santa Claus. I, I was hoping it was Santa come early, but it was probably fucking Krampus. <laughs> <laughs> so all around the property, you have the ghosts of soldiers just walking around kind of like it is in Gettysburg, where there's just a lot of like replay ghosts. Of yeah. Civil War soldiers. I did see that the other apparitions uh, that there were other apparitions seen inside the house as well, but no one put names or faces to them. So unfortunately, I can't find as much as I'd like to. Uh, information was a little scarce on this, and I thought about going back and redoing my story for a third time. But in the words of Sweet Brown, ain't nobody got time for that. <laughs> so I'm hoping this week's story was still enjoyable. Uh, what do you think, Nicole? Would you check this place out? You can't stay overnight even if you wanted to, so you don't have to worry about that. Uh, no. You would still not? I would not. I don't think I would. I feel like I don't need to see these people's house. I don't know. I I don't I, I don't know. I, I, I get torn about like I understand and appreciate the history of slavery in America, but at the same point, like I, I don't feel any compulsion to go see it especially not the house like i'll go see slave quarters because i feel like that's important to understand but i don't need to see the fancy house that their their labor built that's true very true and i mean yeah there's there's ghosts there but they're like the creepy ghosts that i'm like i don't need to know about that <laughs> it's always just it's really unfortunate because plantation homes are always like some of the most freaking beautiful homes that you've like ever seen and it's just horrible what happens there Mm -hmm. The other big one that I thought about doing for this week was uh, Delphine Lolly's house. Mm -hmm. But that was it's it's too depressing to what she did. It's just horrible. And I don't I didn't think I could mentally get through it. Yeah. Yeah. So I just couldn't. Again, Coven was enough for me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, my sources for this week were Wikipedia, MagnoliaPlantation.com. LouisianaTravel.com, OnlyInYourState.com, NPS.gov, TravelChannel.com, 
hauntednation.blogspot.com and hauntedplaces.org. Thanks for that story, Eden. I think it's very, um, I, we haven't really done, I don't think, a really haunted plantation No. in all of our Southern ones. So I'm glad I'm glad you covered one. Exactly. Found one that I, was I really nice. wanted to do a plantation just because that is a big part of the South. So mm-hmm. I figured it would be fun. And you know they're always haunted as hell because terrible shit happened there. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess that's our show for for this week, guys. If you liked what you heard, you can give us a shout. You can send us an email at roadsidehorrorshow at gmail.com. You can visit our website at roadsidehorrorshow.podbean.com. Uh, you can reach out to us on social media. Uh, we are Roadside Horror Show on Facebook and Instagram and Roadside Horror on Twitter. Remember to tell your friends about us to kind of spread the word. Also, to help spread the word online, uh, please give us a uh, you know, good review and uh, you know, rate us. Uh, as always, we'd like to thank E. Massey for our intro and outro music and Yox Rocks Design for our logo. Until next time, guys. Creep, creep on, creeping on. Creepin on. on.